this is Zach Helminiak. Welcome to another episode of Becoming CEO. On this podcast, we talk to leaders who are pioneering technologies in the areas of personalized medicine, genomics, diagnostics, life sciences, and other related areas. These are the high performers at the intersection of business and science. Today, we talk to Valerie Palmieri, the president and CEO of Vermilion. Vermilion makes diagnostic tests that address unmet needs in gynecologic oncology and women's health. Her story is unique because becoming CEO of Vermilion was not what Valerie set out to do. She felt it's what she had to do. On this podcast, she talks about how she found her calling, how she became part of a select group of women entrepreneurs which raised $6 billion over the last 10 years, and what she would do if she could start all over again. After the podcast, you can visit sloanpartners.com for links and more information. This podcast is brought to you by Sloan Partners, an executive search firm specializing in the diagnostics, life science tools, healthcare information technology, and laboratory testing industries. Sloan Partners, premier talent delivered. Valerie, first off, welcome to Becoming CEO. Thank you for uh, being on the show today. Thank you, Zach. Thanks for your time as well. Pleasure speaking with you. So you've had a long career in leadership roles through your work with Momentum and Diagnocure. And uh, actually, your first CEO role was with Lifecycle Laboratories. When did you first realize you wanted to become a CEO? I'd probably say, you know, when I'm going to kind of date myself here, but uh, been in diagnostics for over 30 years. And you know, started out in very large academic centers and knew that I didn't want to be another number. Um, I would probably say the company that I've, you know, was a personal pleasure to build and take public and sell to LabCorp was a company called Dianon Systems. So at that company, I was actually the senior vice president of operations, was in charge of P&L and was in charge of, you know, six locations and a large number of people. So at that point, I wanted to be CEO. The company sold uh, to LabCorp. Subsequently, I became a senior vice president at LabCorp for about five or six years. But I always had this entrepreneurial spirit. I always wanted to make it my own. I wanted to enjoy the the high fives and and really set out a path in terms of a strategic springboard to grow a company and take it from zero to let's just say three hundred million or a billion dollars. I did that as a as a senior leader, but not completely in the driver's seat, you know, driving the company, but as part of a large senior leadership team. When I left LabCorp, I went to Momentum. And when I was at Momentum, it's actually I founded it's a boutique diagnostic services consulting firm. And we have about six consultants that are really what I call battle-hardened experts in the field that work for the firm. The firm is still in existence today. And actually, I'll tell you about my journey and how I came to um Vermilion actually came here as a consultant. I didn't come here as a, a CEO that was a hired gun. Oh, wow. When I was at Momentum, what I would do is go work for the LabCorps of the world, the GE Healthcare's of the world, uh, the Clarions of the world, and just solve their problems, save them money. But I still missed that entrepreneurial kind of creating the plan but seeing to execution. So I was consulting for about six years, and I actually came to a company which is called Vermilion. And I was brought in by a colleague of mine who I've known for a really long time. And he says, Valerie, look, you need to help me. Don't understand the first thing about diagnostic service. Don't understand the first thing about commercializing a service. You need to help me help the company you know, build the lab. 
started on that journey uh, June of last year. Nine times out of 10, Zach, people ask you to work for them full time. I think it's actually, you know, when I consult with people, our average consulting project lasts one to two years. If they are not asking you or asking one of my consultants to come work for the customer, then I wonder what's wrong because every single time you're asked to go work for them. Mm -hmm. So I really thought this was just another opportunity where I'm going to go be asked to go work at a company. So I pushed off like every other time. I probably played hard to get. We talked to the chairman of the board probably too long, probably longer than he probably wanted <laughs> me to. Um, and basically what happened was a couple of things lined up. I attended a ovarian cancer national alliance meeting, a day of a national meeting. And I sat in that meeting to really see how the company represented themselves from a sales perspective, you know, who was working the booth, how are we educating ovarian survivors, how are we educating advocacy groups. So I came in there with a business hat on. I left that conference perpetually touched, and I'll tell you why. I sat in a room of about a thousand women, and those women stood up. You know, they asked them to stand up in terms of how many years you've been surviving with ovarian cancer. So years one, you know, maybe ten stood up. Year two, you know, a bunch stood up. By the time I got to year five, I looked around the room, and the average age was twenty-five to forty. Then a woman got went on stage and said, you know. I've been cut out at the knees. I'll never, you know, get married. I'll never have a baby. I'll never see my daughter's wedding. And so I sat in this room of women that 70 to 80% of them are going to die within five years. And I thought to myself, I've been, I'm being asked to lead this company. How could I walk away from this? So that was like, you know, you have three things line up. Number one was my emotions were engaged. I came home with my husband, he's like, I go, guess what? I'm not going to consult anymore. I think I'm going to say yes. And he's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so I, I was like, you have a good lifestyle and you know, you're doing well. And I'm like, you know, this is a bigger purpose in life. So, but he's like, look, he thought it was just, cause sometimes I say things, you know, you want to move to Costa Rica or you want to do certain things. And he thought it was something that was just going to wear off. So then the next month I had a personal situation with a family member of mine. And then the third thing happened, there's a event called stand up for cancer and they created an ovarian dream team. And being in the diagnostic space all this time, we always have technology that's too new for prime time, right? You can make the best widget, but if the market and the, 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 the people that are gonna consume your product are not ready, you'll never be successful. So what I saw was now the marketplace is there, certainly there's a huge unmet need, and then I had a personal connection. So that's how I came to uh, Vermillion, and I've been CEO as of January. This next question is kind of geared towards people who are looking at their own careers and who might be aspiring to be a CEO one day. Of those previous roles, which many of which you've already mentioned, can you identify like maybe one or two that gave you some really critical experience for what you do today as a CEO? Yes. So my role at Dianon Systems by far, even though there was a CEO at the time um, who was a great leader, he really gave the ball to me. So although I wasn't on paper CEO, it was really here, take the ball and run with it, Valerie, and gave me a lot of bandwidth. So starting at a company, when you are employee number 40, your company's in the red, and growing that company to 1,200 people, and then you managing, let's just say, a thousand of those twelve hundred people on exit. You, you, the experiences. In fact, someone said I should write a book because it's really, I don't want to say a Cinderella story, but it's um, taking technology to give you a background on the company. So here in the U.S., and this is still the case, 
if you do not go to a tertiary care center, a, a, what I call a comprehensive cancer center, your chances of survival of what I call the, not the standard recipe of cancer, are reduced if you don't go to one of these cancer centers. So Dynon was a company that we were a technology transfer center. And in principle, we were taking technology out of Sloan Kettering, Stanford University, and allowing anyone of any walk, any creed, any economic status to access that, what I call, higher level technology. So that experience at Dynon to give what I call stellar service and technology to the common Joe was, uh, you know, you talk about kind of a pay it forward mentality. So that same mentality, you know, I took to momentum, took to really going into consulting because when the human genome got mapped, so many companies were coming at me because they knew we did it at Dynon and they wanted to learn how to commercialize. So I'd probably say my Dynon role from understanding the customers and I was in charge, I was really like chief customer officer, I was in charge of the customer experience from the time that a customer was closed to the to a billing event. Studied outside of the industry. We really, we really looked at ourselves. We didn't have IP, right? What was really our stealth product was our service. I was sent to take courses at Motorola University, studied Southwest Airlines, Taco Bell, you know, Ritz Carlton, studied out of the industry and brought that to diagnostics. So all those life lessons, you know, all I can say to someone who's thinking about being a CEO and let's say you're 10 years from it, just take on as much as you can, eyes wide open, ask lots of questions. No question is a stupid question and take risks. Take risks and don't look back. Of those companies that you that you studied, um, were, were there any that were particularly interesting? Any case studies you can mention? Yes, I will mention a case study, and I I mentioned this even in you know when I um, talk to my, do my town halls with my employees because to me it's all about the front line. So Ritz Carlton, as everyone knows, is a chain of hotels. So you can go from you know Marriott Courtyard all the way to Ritz Carlton. It's the same company. Ritz Carlton has a level of service that is really soup to nuts, but you're wondering, okay, you have this lavish, you know, surroundings, you know, why do you pay $500 a room, right? Once that, once that capital is amortized, basically they've paid for themselves, right? And those hotels have been around a long time, but really what makes them unique and what's their value differentiating is their service. So I'll give you an analogy. If you look at a floor in Ritz-Carlton, you'll see that the ratio of maids to rooms is lower than another hotel. Guess who actually calls the shots to rent a room in a Ritz-Carlton? The maids. The maids. Amazing. And when you look at any hotel, it's not the maids that calls the shots. So that maid is given a, a stipend every month to basically wow a customer. They know the names who have customers that have been in that, in that hotel. They may hook themselves to a repeat customer so that that maid is taking care of that person who's staying in her room or set of rooms. They'll say if a, if, a, if a curtain is torn, if the bedding doesn't look right, whatever, they will decide not to rent their room. They call the shots. So we took that to diagnostics and said, okay, anyone that touches a customer is really the person that calls the shots. So if you're picking up a specimen, if you're talking to them in customer service, if you're a doctor having a consultation phone call, anyone or sales rep, anyone that touches that customer is empowered to wow that customer on speed of resolution, follow through, did that result really add the value that it was going to add? And that by far, we took our attrition rate from losing about 20% of business in an average year to less than 2% by doing that. I love that. 
I love that example too. You may have touched on this and it may be more of an evolution, but I'm curious in your current role as CEO, is there anything that you're doing very specifically different than your other roles based on your past experience? Yes, I think a couple of things. Um, number one is we are more of a virtual organization. So I have an apartment in Austin and live in Connecticut, and the whole senior management team is is in different parts of the country. So I think that definitely has its challenges. We're lo- using some neat products. Um, so I think from a virtual standpoint, using the latest and greatest products, and I don't want to promote a product on your show, but, mm-hmm. um, but there's some really great products out there that really make you feel like you're in the room, and actually the audio is a lot better. I also think when you're in a career for a long time, not to age myself, everyone else has been there, done that, right, has their recipe. But it's really collectively, it's diversity that makes a team. And sometimes someone has been hired in a certain role, and they may not be the best person for that role. So one of the things we're going through is a strength-based leadership program to really look back and say, okay, what are your core strengths? Because if you look at life, whether someone has a knack for fishing or a knack for throwing a spiral... If you're good at something, you love it. You mm-hmm. absolutely love it. So my goal in this job is to create positions that people wake up every morning and they don't look at you know how much I'm getting paid or how many hours I work. They love what they do. So I think that's a different uh, philosophy in that when I'm, I'm with a small team of people, we're only about 45 people, so we can do those things. Mm-hmm. When I'm managing 1,000 people, it's a little different. Um, but it, but you get to know the families, and whenever we talk about ourselves, we talk about ourselves as a family, not as individuals. And everyone in the company is eligible for the leadership program? Yes, that's Very correct. Cool. Who would you say is your most influential mentor? It's going to sound corny, but my mom. <laughs> my mom, just looking back on life, you know, she was a role model. She always worked. So back in the you know, kind of, again, aging myself. Back in the 60s, moms that worked full-time was not a a common thing, right? Mm -hmm. So she's someone that always balanced working, raising a family, and really, you know, always shoot for the fences, Valerie, so your biggest fan. So by far, there's times where you, you know, someone could say just based on where you are in your career or based on, I'm going to call the evolution of women leaders in this country, you can get sometimes discouraged, you know, and um, so that that individual is definitely my mother in terms of just never let your chin go down, always being positive, always, you know, leaving something better than you found it. So that's definitely, it's not probably the answer you want to hear in terms of, uh, you know, whether it's Jack Welsh or something like that, but... Definitely, it's she's she's definitely was the most influential mentor, and that's that's I, that's something actually I do myself right now. I mentor quite a bit. Oh, excellent! And and what format is that? Who who do you mentor, and is it with a company? Lifecycle Laboratories was a, a startup I was actually founder of um, with another very well known, prominent um, infertility specialist. I actually, did the second test tube baby, and we discovered a technology that you can determine your ovarian reserve from a finger stick test. My company was actually voted as top 10 woman entrepreneur, so I was inducted into this group of women called wow. Springboard Enterprises. Springboard Enterprises is a group of about 500 women, and we've raised about $6 billion over the last 10 years. So now I'm in this honorary group of women, so what do I do? I give back. So I have the role models. You know, I'm a role model to a new entrepreneur, a female. Again, all females who are trying to make, you know, a pap smear that can go to Africa, trying to make green 
you know, fluorescent lights. These are engineers, women that are engineers. So I'm mentoring them in terms of their business models, their processes, hiring the right teams. In addition to that, creating a friend for life. Yeah, wow. And what is the name of that group again? Springboard Enterprises. Gotcha. Okay, I'll be sure to include a link to that in the, um, in the written portion of the interview. Let's jump back into uh, building a company. You have unique experience with this as a consultant uh, with Momentum. Talk to us about executive search and recruitment. Has an executive search firm ever added value to your career or your business? Yes, absolutely. I think well, I think a couple of things. I think that recruiters, and maybe the word recruiters is not the proper word. When I really look at it is, is relationship management and everybody evolves, right? So actually I would say to Sloan, maybe you, th- maybe you call it Sloan Partners, but I don't look at it as a recruiter. I look at it as a, as a partnership and really taking people in and out of different chapters of their life where Maybe one chapter needs to be closed and another chapter needs to open. So, yes, I think recruiters, you know, I have several that I, I look at them not just as a recruiter but as a friend. And they're individuals that they get to know you personally. They get to know how many kids you have. And, you know, so it's what's right for your career. And then if that fit is good, they basically take that company to new heights. So I think the recruiter word is probably not the best word. There probably is a better word out there than to use um, kind of like maybe it's an evolutionary coach, you know, kind of like it's in terms of as you evolve as a, a in your career, you need someone that's evolving with you and seeing what's out there because sometimes you can also get so in a box that you don't even know your value either. Yeah. Do you have uh, any examples you can share of the last time a new chapter opened for someone at your company that was a result of uh, an executive search? Yeah, I think that... You know, several of the individuals, new individuals that we brought on board um, recently, you know, came from all different walks of life. Because, again, I believe diversity makes it a team. You know, it's you can't always be the clone of each other. So having individuals that have, uh, whether it's IVD experience, diagnostic service experience, uh, women's health experience. So how we bounce ideas off each other and create the common mission and common vision, I think, is absolutely required. In fact... I think if a recruiter has a time and has the stay power, basically taking that entire leadership team and helping mold it and sculpt it can be very powerful for an organization versus a one-shot deal. So um, I've definitely seen that live and happening in terms of really taking companies to the next level. So, so I have three questions left here, and they're all kind of fun questions. Okay. okay. Um, do you have time for them? Sure. Okay. Uh, so the first one is, if you could go back to the beginning of your career and do something differently, what would you do? I think I would have fought harder for women. Um, I kind of didn't know what was going on around me. You know, I knew it was a hard road, but I would have been more, like right now, I don't want to say I'm a feminist, but I guess I am. I still think it's a man's world. I think that if I kind of knew, I was just in the groove, right? It didn't, it didn't appear to me that I was a female and someone and I was in a room of all males. But I think if I knew, if I kind of stepped back on it, and now it's coming to light, you know, in terms of salary, in terms of even, even the, the medicines that are um, prescribed, the clinical trials are mostly done with, you know, white males, for instance. And they have this new thing. I don't know if you're up to speed on it because I'm in the diagnostic field, but there's a drug called Ambien. 
and Ambien, you know, women are falling asleep at the wheel. Well, they found out women metabolize Ambien different than men. So, well, now that I'm a, now that I kind of look back and, you know, where I am in my career, I probably would have been more forthright in terms of understanding the obstacles a woman is facing instead of just being a doer and just making, you know, fitting in the whole system, but actually making a difference so that this change didn't have to take to 2015 to notice it. Um, That would have been number one. And then number two, I think more environmental. I'm I'm definitely a person who's really big into the oceans, pelagic species, and we don't even know what's becoming extinct because we haven't had a way to measure or monitor. Um, We're just starting that process. So I think I would probably... I would start my career all over again is, is to make people more aware of environment and make people more aware of the, uh, the plight for women. Are you, uh, are you involved with any environmental groups? No, I, I, no, I do a lot of charitable work in a sense of, um, but not officially, you know, part of, but I do a lot of charitable work in a sense of donations and things like that. And, um, I'm involved in some what I call dress for success for women. But now it's, you know, like the light bulbs are going off in my head now. Can you imagine being 22, 23, having that passion and everybody you touch? Because to me, life is about a journey and touching your inner circle. So not to give you my age, but kind of where I'm at, I probably have touched, you know, you look at my LinkedIn, you know, you, you touch so many people. So if you are wise above your years and you can make that impression, you know, just think about how much of a better place this earth can be. Yeah. So, so if someone was to want to uh, learn more either about the the women's issues that you're involved in or the environmental issues that you care about, do you have any uh, suggested resources for either one? Get involved with Springboard. Be an entrepreneur, and you know. So I started out in Springboard later in my career, but the women I mentor, they're in their twenties and thirties. So you're given the artillery, and I hate to call it artillery, but you're given the tools, the firepower to stand up to, whether you're raising capital, to stand up to your board. It's really an incredible training program. In fact, they call it a boot camp. So anyone that wants to be a leader, especially a woman, you may not be an entrepreneur, but figure it out. And you have to be voted into this. It's I don't want to say it's like... um. It is a, it is a, it's kind of like a multi-city um, contest. So uh, they go, they go around to all different cities and all different countries actually. But doing springboard, um, I think is something that if you've got entrepreneurial spirit, definitely doing that. I think also just, there's a lot of, one of the things I'm, in, I'm active in is it's just um, like a Fairfield County uh, Women's Executive Network. And so there's all women, all walks of life from accountants to nurses. And they don't look at themselves as leaders, right? But everyone can be a leader. And they are leaders, but they haven't been given the opportunity. So getting involved even in your local women's networks, I I think, is really important. And then on the environment side, you know, it's just finding your passion, whether it's, you know, whether whether it's dogs, whether it's, as I said, my thing is the ocean, anything to do with the ocean. I think finding your passion and then making a difference or... National Geographic does a lot of great work in terms of saving the lions. I'm also involved with that as well. So they, they're building these things called Burmas so that the environment is actually decreasing for these lions and they don't have a place to go. So they go into the villages, right? Mm-hmm. And the villages then, you know, basically kill them. And so they're creating these ways in which you could put a Burma around the village so the lions don't come in. And it's not because the lions are 
hungry, it's because their environment is being reduced. Yeah, and there was a sad story in the news about that recently. Was there? I didn't even see it. Uh, yeah, a, an American dentist hunted and killed a uh, famous lion in Zimbabwe, I believe. Oh my and, gosh. And uh, there's been a lot of social media backlash against him and against the, the people that he, were supposedly leading a legal hunt. Yeah, so that's pretty hot topic in the news right now. No, I didn't even, I didn't even see it. So this, this question, I think, is really useful for people who want to be productive. Do you have any rituals or tools that you use for managing your day-to-day, whether that's time um, or, you know, your activities? Uh, examples of this are like meditation or apps that you use or just kind of like principles that you use for thinking about your day. Yeah, I definitely do some things. So I start, well, start in the morning. Definitely, I think exercise is good to get your just your overall blood pressure up and getting you moving. So um, definitely finding a, I think, a uh, something which raises your aerobic capacity. So it could be yoga, it could be running. So I definitely do that every day. It also, while you're doing that, you're, you're thinking, right? You're meditating, you're thinking about your day and you, you'll have the best outcome if you really take that critical thinking time. So exercise, meditating one-on-one, but I think it's extremely important daily. I also think that in terms of emails or papers, touching things once. So if I touch it, it goes. I don't like make a pile and go through it once and then go through it again. It's one and done. I also think in terms of meetings, there's far too many meetings. Read a really good book called TED Talks. And basically in 18 minutes, you should be able to tell your tell your story. You know, mm-hmm. and it goes through how to tell your story in 18 minutes. I don't know if you've ever listened to a TED talk, but you know, these meetings go on. You could be in meetings all day, right? So 18 minutes, so the 18-minute rule. And then the last thing is, um, and this just helps me, because you go, you lay down at night, and again, you're meditating, is keep a piece of paper by your bed and write a note, because then you can go to sleep. So if you get it off your mind on the paper, it's just a form of, I'm not going to forget it. So those are just some of my rituals. That's great. I love all those. All right, one final question, and this is just purely for fun. I'll take either your first leadership role in life or your first job in life. And did you learn anything in that role? Yes. Um, my first leadership job in life, and this is going to be funny, I was actually a telemarketer <laughs> and led a telemarketing team. So I had to sell products over the phone with ever seeing a person, right? So in terms of just phone slamming down on you, handling, you know, um, some, you know, rejection and, and motivating a team, here I was 16 years old doing this, that was probably the first leadership role, but it was teaching me all the things that sometimes it takes people 20 years to feel, right? And I learned it in summer, I did it was a summer jobs, you know, while I was in high school. And they always wanted me to come back. And it was, you know, pep talking people in the morning, because at the end of the day, when you get, you know, 100 phones hung up on you, you get tired of that. So didn't realize what I was doing at the time. But it was instant rejection, instant gratification. And as you know, the millennials love instant. So when I was young, instant was and I was, and didn't even realize it was happening, but I was getting instant uh, training. It was a tough job, but it was it taught me a lot. What What were you selling? I was selling, believe it or not, I was selling carpet cleaning. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> carpet cleaning. So someone to come to your house to clean your carpets. So how do you sell someone who has hardwood floors, right? You tell That's me. Yeah. <laughs> so so you'd say to them, well, you know what? 
but you notice that to keep your hard floors nice, you're going to have to have area rugs. We have an area rug service. Actually, I started an area rug service too. It says, and then you have deals on certain days where we would have an ebb and flow and carpet cleaning. We do an area rug, like you get them all together and go go pick them up, and it was a pickup service. So there yeah. you go, adapting, adapting exactly. to the market. I think that uh, I should let you get back to your day now, probably. Yes, I am very very busy. Um, um, but I, I I scheduled this with you, Zach, and I thought it was just a fun thing to do, and um, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, this was a this was a fun interview. Um, Valerie Palmieri, President and CEO of Vermilion. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Zach. Have a great day. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening. For links and information about the discussion, or for more episodes, please visit sloanpartners.com. See you next time on Becoming CEO. This podcast is brought to you by Sloan Partners, an executive search firm specializing in the diagnostics, life science tools, healthcare information technology, and laboratory testing industries. Sloan Partners, premier talent delivered.